The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Let's take our Bibles now, if you will, and open them to Exodus chapter 20. This morning we resume our study of the Ten Commandments. In the Hebrew translation of Scripture, this is called the Ten Words, or Ten Very Succinct Statements that define the whole duty of man to God and to our fellow man. In Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13, it says, Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter, fear God, and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. The last commandment that was in our study was the fifth commandment, which says that we are to honor our father and our mother. The fifth commandment is the bridge. It's the connector between the two great tables of the law. In the first, we have the vertical relationship of man to God. And in the second table, we have the relationship of man to man. And the key word that connects those two principles is honor. That we honor God by reverencing His name. His name stands for all that God is, the supreme and only ruler of this universe. And then likewise, we are to honor our parents, which shows us that God has given an authority over us. And obedience is the link between those first two tables. Commandment number one began our relationship with God in the first table. And commandment number five, which is the first commandment of the second table, begins our relationship with our fellow man. And now we come to the sixth commandment. This is also a part, of course, of the second table of the law. And in commandments five through ten, the concentration is on that second division, which Jesus called the second greatest commandment. And that is the treatment of our fellow man, which is so highly sought after that God says that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. Arthur Pink summed up the commandments in this way. In the first five commandments, we have seen how God safeguarded his own glory. In the second five, we are to behold how he provides for the security and well-being of man. Uh, You notice in that quote, that Arthur Pink believed that the fifth commandment belonged to the first table of the law. And we're not going to argue that point. Uh, We've already discussed that. And and my conclusion is it belongs to the second table of the law. But no matter how we characterize it or categorize it, it's still apparent that the first and second tables are linked through Jesus' emphasis on love. Love God, love your fellow man. And then Pink goes on with his with his explanation of the Sixth Commandment and his summation of the rest of the table of the law by saying that that Sixth Commandment is for the protection of man's person. And then for the sanctity and good of his family, thou shalt not commit adultery. For the safety of his estate and substance, thou shalt not steal. For his reputation and good name, thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Finally, as a strong fence about the whole law, God not only prohibits outward crimes, but inward motions of evil in our thoughts and affections. Thou shalt not covet. I think that's a very good summary of the second table. And once we have learned the authority of human relationships and commandments number five, then we come to the sixth commandment, which I believe 
I believe is the foundation for love your neighbor as yourself. And that foundation is what God teaches about the sanctity of life. God said, thou shalt not kill. That's the 13th verse. Thou shalt not kill. And in those four words, God tells us that human life is precious. You shall not take human life. Now, that is, a, that is a qualified statement, which we'll soon see, uh, see, which literally means you shall not unlawfully take human life. Human life is sacred to God. And I don't suppose a greater statement could have been made to show us the sanctity of human life than what Jesus said in John 6:51. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man shall eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. Jesus gave his life for the life of the world. Human life is so precious that God became man and he gave up his own life to save life. His life was so that man could live, not just here and now, but that man can live forever. God values human life so much that he wants life to be everlasting. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but what? Have everlasting life. So God is going to populate his house, his kingdom, his city, his heavenly country with human life. And there is nothing that expresses the supreme regard that God has for life than what Jesus did. God breathed into man life. And man became a human soul. And yet, despite God's high regard for life, there's a common thread that runs through the writings of philosophers, and there's a common thread in the actions of our society that our society is more a culture of death than it is of life. Now, it's noted that murder and violence have become a major source of entertainment in our country. Philip Ryken wrote, By the time the average child finishes elementary school, he or she has watched 8,000 televised murders and 100,000 acts of on-screen violence. Phil Newton commented on that and said, That makes you labor for your child to be below average. Now, another very interesting analysis is how psychologists and the police have assessed the rash of school shootings that we've had over the past few years. And they wonder how is it that a, that a young student, like a high school student, can hit a moving target and one who's never had any, any imminent life-threatening violence can just calmly and accurately shoot and kill. And the conclusion is that these children have been exposed to personal shooter video games which have helped them to perfect their skills. Like a pilot that goes into a flight simulator to learn how to fly an airplane. These children have learned the art of violence and killing, and so they can calmly walk into a classroom and shoot their classmates. They've seen it on television and in movies and in video games. It dulls their senses to the sacredness of life. Bloodshed doesn't mean anything to them. On television, a person can be shot. Five minutes later... He's in the hospital another five minutes and he's up and around and he's ready for the next scene. It's just like nothing happened. Children don't understand that a, that a bullet shatters flesh and bone, that it's a devastating, debilitating thing. They don't understand that dead people don't come back to life. Or maybe they 
think that they do, that the walking dead, they'll just be the walking dead. They've seen enough zombie movies and all of that. To, that teaches them what life is about. So some of the mystery is solved why the culture keeps shifting towards death. But that's not all. Although TV is fantasy, it is a microcosm of what is not. It used to be that many people didn't want to live in the big cities because of high crime and the murder rate. And in some places it's so bad that murder doesn't even make the newspapers unless it's a particularly heinous murder. Hundreds of murders happen every year and you don't know about them until they, you see them lumped into one statistic, one big statistic. Another one dies, but what that's, what's that to us? Another life is taken, what's that to us? But now it's not only in the big cities that there are murders and people are afraid. We also find that in small-town America today. I mean, how many times have you read a news story that begins like this? The sleepy little town of Farmville was shocked by the gruesome murder of a family of five. This kind of thing happens in Cloverdale as well as in Oakland. Now, ironically, the culture of death has become a way of life in places of the world. In China, selective population control by abortion keeps the labor force strong by favoring male babies over females. But at the same time, they've caused a shortage of females for men to marry. The culture of death has made abortion an insistent right so that when a politician like Hillary Clinton was asked about late-term abortions and partial birth abortions, without even blinking an eye, without flinching in regret, she effectively said, kill them. We're not going to let them live if the mother doesn't want them. And so the culture of death is spread across the world. Every day there's a new terrorist report that says that someone has, or a group of people have been killed, and we're just waiting for another 9-11 to happen on our soil because we've seen it happen so much in the cities of Europe. And so we are blinded by the culture of death, a culture of death that, that, that a religion that fosters the taking of lives that disagree with them can't be labeled for what it is. Radicalized Islam is simply devoted Islam. Now this commandment then deserves a closer look. The depravity of man can't be expressed in a greater way than that Jesus is life and life is sacred. And there's no more depraved attitude towards life when we disregard the sanctity of life. We end it any time that we please and often it's sanctioned by the highest politicians in our land. So it's no wonder that our generation has no regard for life. They've grown up with death. The majority will not defend the most innocent of lives. I mean, how, how upside down are we when Americans have ballot measures that are in favor of saving murderers from execution but have no qualms about killing babies? So our duty is to take this commandment and see what it means. We can't love our fellow man if we believe that his life is worthless. If Christ died for people, then we need no more proof how we ought to treat their lives if Christ loved them we also ought to love them. So let's break this commandment down. What does it mean? Now first, today, we'll spend our time talking about the crime of murder. And this is where we have to start because of the wording that's in our King James Bible. The English here actually obscures the meaning of the command. The, the command says, Thou shalt not kill. 
And I'm going to deal more extensively with it later. But you should be aware, and you might already know, that there are many who take this command to defend a repeal of the death penalty. It's also used to support pacifism. It's used to uh, defend various positions like the treatment of animals and vegetarianism. And people that use it for those arguments do not understand the text. Now the King James translation is good if you care to study it to a deeper level, but it's bad unless you follow it all the way through so that you understand the context. Now, in the original Hebrew, God was very, very careful about his choice of words. The Hebrew word for kill is rawsack, and it's not a generic term for killing. It's a very specific term for the violence of murder of a personal enemy. It's never used in the context of war. It's never used in the context of capital punishment. It's never used in the context of self-defense. It's never used when God or angels are the subject of the verb. Now, the literal rendering of the text is this, you shall not murder. You shall not take life unlawfully. And I remind you that this is a law that comes from God. We're reading a law that is in the Ten Commandments. And in the next chapter, and in the rest of the Pentateuch, this will be expounded in more detail for clearer understanding. The first five books of the Bible are called the Torah, they are called the Pentateuch. Penta means five, Tukos means book. So this is the book of the law. So what God says in the exposition of the book of the law is the real meaning of this. And that's what we have to look into. This becomes clear as we go through the scriptures. Now let me point out some facts about the crime of murder. The first thing that we would notice is the antiquity of murder. Murder is the oldest crime recorded in the Bible. Now, it's remarkable that the worst crime that humans can commit was the first one that was committed. It's almost as if God wanted to show us in the very beginning how radical the fall of man was. And for those that argue that man is able to rise above his depravity and that he can choose God and follow him from some sort of internal volition, God shuts down that thinking immediately by showing us what man will do when he's left to himself. The crime is murder. The first sin after the fall was against both tables of the law. It was against God and it was against man and it was murder. Cain killed his brother Abel. I'd like you to turn to 1 John chapter 3. I find it most interesting that the Apostle John wrote to the church about love, and he said that we prove our love for God by loving our fellow man. And he combined the first and second tables of the law in these statements. In 1 John 3 and verse number 11, For this is the message that ye heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of that wicked one, and slew his brother. And wherefore slew he him? Because his own works were evil, and his brother's righteous. Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer, and ye know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Christ loved men, and he gave his life for them, and because he is our example, we are to lay down our lives for each other. Now, John connected the love of God to the love of man by saying, Don't be like Cain, who murdered 
his brother Abel. And as a side note to that point, this is support for Jesus' strong teachings about anger and hatred being the sins of murder in the heart. So murder is a very old crime. How did we get it? Well, it came from the same place that all sin came from. The author of murder is Satan. Jesus said, Ye are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. Now, when Satan tempted Adam and Eve and they fell, the seed of murder was sown. And in one generation, that seed grew and Cain killed Abel. The worst that man can do, he did not fail to do. Sociologists will not admit that there is an inherent problem in people. They don't agree that there is a moral nature in man that's inherent from his birth. They're convinced that, that this is learned behavior. That murder is a product of the environment. Murder is a short circuit and only a few. Or murder is, uh, is by our education, a lack of education, or maybe it is those TV shows and the video games that induce something that's not already in the human heart. And as you know, there are many activists who believe that murder happens because people have guns. But they're wrong. Murder is an inherent problem. Murder is a nature problem that lurks in the heart of every human being going back to the fall when death passed upon all men. Satan tempted and man responded. And Satan spawned that rebellion against God by his own rebellion in heaven and then he turned his attention to God's greatest creation which was man, the highest form of life, and he tempted man and eventually it came to the sin of murder. Sometimes murder is secret and subtle does it raise very much attention. At other times, it's woefully gruesome. You remember Scott Peterson, who's on death row in San Quentin. He murdered his pregnant wife, dismembered her body, put her in his fishing boat, and took her out in the bay and dumped her. And he might have escaped. Nobody might have known about it. But her torso floated up to the surface, and someone found that on the shore. Before that, in 1993, there was a local murder when Polly Class, a 12-year-old, was abducted from a slumber party and strangled. Before that, the Menendez brothers killed their wealthy parents with shotguns to get their inheritance. Going back still further into the late 70s and early 80s, Jeffrey Dahmer murdered 17 people, and before killing them, he cut off body parts and ate them. And back further still, we can go to the worst mass murders in history like Hitler and, and the Holocaust, Stalin in Russia, Mao in China. And we look at all these gruesome murders and we distance ourselves from that because we think, well, we, we would never be guilty of such things. But still, we see that happens across the world. You ask our missionary Wilson Mongo in Africa about this. We were worried about violence in our country after this last election. We have no idea what election violence is. You, you ask Wilson Mongo about this. What happens when you have an election in Africa? Well, it's very possible that all the opposition is killed. Everybody's exterminated who opposes the government. And so we distance ourselves from that, and we're in shock about the murderer. And yet Jesus labels all people that way, that murder is in the human heart. Romans 1 gives the characteristic of humans in the natural state. And in that list, in verse number 29, is the sin of murder. 
Murder started with its author, who is Satan, and it's a very, very old sin. Secondly, is the abomination of murder. What makes murder such a heinous crime? Why is God so concerned about this? Now, the command very clearly says, thou shalt not kill. But what it doesn't do, it doesn't give us the rationale for the statement. Why shouldn't we kill? Well, the answer to that question is found at the beginning of man's existence. In the first chapter of Genesis, God said, that let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, them. Male and female created he them. Man was created in God's image. Genesis 9 verse 6, Whoso sheddeth Man's blood, by man, by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God made he man. And so when a person's life is taken, the image of God is, is, is destroyed. Human life is sacred to God. But it's not because of us. It's because of what God has made. Campbell Morgan wrote, the revelation of God made to man proves that he has purposes for every individual and for the race, stretching far beyond the present moment or manifestation. And to terminate a single life is to set up the wit and wisdom of man as supreme to that of God. How much is murder and abomination to God? Proverbs 6 says, These six things that the Lord hate, yea, seven are abomination unto him. A proud look, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that deviseth wicked imaginations, feet that be swift to running to mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies, and he that soweth discord among the brethren. And right there in Proverbs chapter 6, you find, a, you find a summary, a microcosm of the second table of the commandments. Hands that shed innocent blood are hated by God. God reveres human life so much that he said that his kingdom is not a place for murderers. Revelation 22, blessed are they that do his commandments that they may have right to the tree of life and enter in through the gates into the city. For without are dogs and sorcerers and whoremongers and murderers and idolaters and whosoever loveth and maketh a lie. These are the people that are on the outside of heaven. People that are not going to get in. Murderers is in that list. And we would do well to regard that when we think about all the murders that take place in our country today. When you consider that there are over 17,000 murders in this country each year, and there are over one and a half million abortions in this country, and millions more across the world, murder is the worst of all crimes committed against humanity. And it's a it's a serious thing for this creature that evolutionists say is evolving to a higher order. Well, let's just take a moment to break down the different categories of murder. How may this crime be committed? So, the array of murder. First and foremost is willful, intentional, premeditated taking of another life. The word kill has that inherent meaning. That murder arises out of the hatred of heart, of the hatred of the heart, and, it, and it's caused by many things, including commandments that follow. Murder can happen because of adultery. Murder happens because of theft. Murder can happen because people are covetous. 
The Bible gives no quarter to willful, intentional acts of murder. And I think there's hardly any of us that would dispute that. We're not going to argue about it. We're, we're not going to give a defense of those who commit the crime of murder. But we have a much harder time with the, with the other categories that become the, the, the source of social debate. And it's not because the other categories are hard to understand, but because the culture of death diminishes these. These are things that are normative for, normative for us, and we commend ourselves. We don't like to condemn ourselves. And so we think we're doing pretty well on this. I've already mentioned abortion. There's an ongoing debate about abortion because of the argument about when life begins. When, when a baby is in the womb, is that a human life? That's, that's the argument. And if we determine that, then that should in the debate, or at least it should if we're, we've got any kind of moral scruples at all. So let me give you a few scriptures in case you're wondering. Does the Bible tell us when life begins? Does it tell us anything about it? Let's look. Job 31, verse 15. Did not he that made me in the womb make him? And did not one fashion us in the womb? Psalm 139, 13 to 16. For thou hast possessed my reins, thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. And I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. My substance was not hid from thee when I was made in secret, and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Thine eyes did see my substance, yet being unperfect. And in thy book all my members were written, which in continuance were fashioned, when as yet there were none of them. Ecclesiastes 11, verse 5, As thou knowest not what is the way of the Spirit, nor how the bones do grow in the womb of her that is with child, even so thou knowest not the works of God who maketh all. Jeremiah 1, 4 and 5, Then the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. And before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee, and I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. God's interpretation of life is in the womb. That's the definition. At any time the fetus is in the womb, life has begun. The sperm is not human life. The egg is not human life. But at the moment that that egg is fertilized, when conception happens, life has begun. That's the Bible's definition of in the womb. I'm satisfied that I don't have to philosophize about this. I, I, I don't have to guess when a fetus becomes a living soul. Life begins at conception, and then the baby becomes a living soul. Now, do you think that this is something that we only argue about in the 20th century or the 21st century? Is this just an argument for our time? Well, let's listen to what John Calvin said in the 16th century. For the fetus though enclosed in the womb of its mother, is already a human being. And it is almost a monstrous crime to rob it of life which is not yet begun to enjoy. If it seems more horrible to kill a man in his own house than in a field, because a man's house is his place of most secure refuge, it ought surely to be deemed more atrocious to destroy a fetus in the womb before it comes to light. I found that to be a very interesting quote. That the mother's womb is supposed to be a place of safety. Calvin said that if a man's house is a secure place of refuge, then how much more the womb is a place of refuge for an innocent unborn baby. Now, for your interest, 
there is an argument about when the soul enters into that fetus. That's been debated by theologians and others for centuries. I've already given you my opinion that the soul enters at the moment of conception. But there's a very interesting theory that was held by Aristotle. Uh, this might be of some interest to you ladies. He said that the fetus becomes a living soul 25 to 40 days after conception. That's for the male. But it's 50 to 80 days after conception for females. And so essentially there's a value disparity between male and female fetuses. And then there's this theory that was argued throughout the years about, and really one that abortion proponents would like for us to believe, and this theory said that the fetus does not become fully human until one year after birth. Up to that time, human babies are more like animals because they're more helpless than, than baby animals are, and for a longer time. Now, in that case, live birth abortions wouldn't be a problem because you could kill a baby like you kill puppies. They aren't humans at all. Isn't that a sick way of looking at things? I mean, you would actually... And, and this could happen today. You could get in trouble, more trouble for killing puppies than for killing babies. So it's no wonder that people can rationalize killing in the womb no matter how late it is. And then there's another form of murder that's gaining traction. In March, Jerry Brown, our esteemed governor, called a special legislative session in which they passed a law to allow medically assisted suicide. Supposedly that's for humanitarian purposes. But the proponents of euthanasia want to take it further. And now they argue that newborns can be killed if they're born with Down syndrome or other debilitating diseases. That the handicap, if a child is born with some kind of handicap or handicapped people that are, in their estimation, no use to society or those that have terminal illnesses, they can be killed because they're an economic drain. And so the big question to these amoral people is, how much does it cost to keep them alive? If it drains off too many of our resources that we can use for other things, then let's don't spend the money, let's just kill them. That's a price that we put on human life. And guess what? Someday, somebody may, may decide, is your life worth saving? And if you're not contributing enough, if you take more than you can give, then you don't deserve to live. Now we sit here and we think, this is outlandish. But that's today's rationale. That's what we're seeing today. It's a culture of death. We propose death and nobody's very seriously alarmed about it. Nobody's upset about it. It's as simple as a ballot proposition or a special legislative session and with a stroke of a pen, life is meaningless. Listen, life to God is sacred. You don't get decide, to decide for convenience sake if a life is worth saving. You don't get to decide, well, that, 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 that's a mother's right to choose and she has a higher order of selection and decision than God's right to give life. So the doctor walks through the hospital ward and he says, pull this plug and pull that one. This one gets no more food. That one gets no more water. Pull the plug on them. The insurance company says it costs too much. Let them die. And do you think that that doesn't hit home? My wife is suffering from liver disease. And unless the Lord is gracious and intervenes, it's terminal. She's not going to be saved without a new liver. So I asked the doctor, how's that going to be done? And he said, that's a board decision. 
Kaiser will say, is she worth saving? Essentially, what's the cost ratio benefit of this? That's how we decide who lives and dies. Did we pay enough in premiums? And then thirdly, killing can also involve carelessness. Now we're not talking about premeditated murder. This is murder because you're careless with human life. You didn't take care to consider how your actions might endanger the life of another person. This is the guy that drinks one too many and gets in the car and then kills somebody. Oh, you might despise, uh, disguise that with some kind of sympathy for their plight. The Bible calls it murder. How many warnings does a person need not to do it? In the last election, California voters voted to legalize recreational marijuana. A few weeks ago, um, I was turning off of Expressway onto uh, the street right out here, Country Club Drive, sitting at the right, right over there. Directly across from me was a guy in a pickup truck who drew a puff off of a bong, blew it out the window, and ruined visibility for five cars behind him. California voters may well be guilty of murder. Where is there an analyst who denies that marijuana doesn't lead to experimentation with more lethal drugs? Where is there one who doesn't say that Americans are losing IQ, in other words, they're becoming dumber because of marijuana? I haven't seen a smart one yet. So those who run drugs, those who use drugs and sell drugs and vote for drugs are going to be held accountable for murder. And then finally, let me give you one more. This one is tragic. It's very heartbreaking. It's affected lives of even people in our own church. And as terrible as it may be, the Bible teaches that suicide is murder. Jesus said that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. And we ought not to lose the last part of that statement. And we do sometimes because the last part of it is so, so abused because people often love nobody but self. However, the force of this statement is dependent upon love of self. God, God put this desire of self-preservation into the human heart so that we don't risk our lives for nothing. This self-preservation keeps us, keeps us from stepping off the curb and not looking both ways to see if there's a car coming. Self-preservation keeps us away from the edge of the cliff so we walk far back from it so that we don't fall off and kill ourselves. And that self-preservation instinct is the comparison that Jesus used for the way that we are to love others. Suicide is a lack of dependence on God. It's a, it's a way out of problems because we don't trust God to bring us through them. Suicide is a crime against the whole gamut of relationships. It's sin against God. It's sin against the God's image that is in you. It's sin against family and friends. It's as bad as taking another person's life because you don't get to decide who lives and dies, including you. Suicide is so substantial that it's caused many Christians to believe that a suicide victim has no possibility of entrance into heaven. Some believe that a saved person is incapable of it. Some say that it's impossible to repent of the sin, so therefore all those who commit the sin will not be in heaven. There are many Catholic families that live in despair because a loved one dies that way and they believe it will doom the soul forever. 
I'm not going to explore that today because, as I've said, we would have to determine, is it possible for a Christian to commit suicide? Does God stop him? And if not, are all suicide victims in hell? So you can think that over. So the truth is, from any angle, there's no one who wins with suicide. And the root cause of all of this is as it is with the sins of all men. It's the fall of man. It's the depravity of the human heart out of which comes every evil. And so you see there are these different categories in the wide array of murder. And the rationale for thou shalt not kill is that murder denies the sanctity of life. And so if anyone takes life in any way that does not fit the way God says life can be taken, that person is a murderer. Next time I'm going to explain to you how that God says life can be taken. Thou shalt not kill. It's about taking life unlawfully. But it can be taken lawfully. And there are an array of situations for that as well. Now I, I can assure you that if a person sins and that sin is so great, it's great enough as defined by God, then his life should be taken. Well, let's close today by bringing the message back to Christ. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Jesus came to ensure that life would continue. He doesn't want people to die. We are going to die physically, but that's only so that God can purge the body of sin to give us a new body that will never die. And that's what Christ came to do. That's what this life is all about. It's about the soul that lives forever. It's not about conscious existence. The soul is always consciously existent, but it's not always alive. Conscious existence in hell is called eternal death. It's never called life. Christ died so that we would have eternal life, not conscious existence in eternal death. We have a culture of death, but God doesn't. So Jesus came to prevent the soul from dying and going to hell. He loved humans so much that he was willing to give his life for you. And his life, believing in that life, is the only way that you're going to escape eternal death. Jesus came to die that you might live. And so, this is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Your life is sacred because of this. You are made in the image of God. And so you make sure that you continue your life by trusting in Jesus Christ today. That's the only way that will happen. Jesus came to die that we might have life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you thanking you for the life that we have in Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, that you sent your Son into this world to die for us, that we would be able to live forever, that we would live out the intentions that you have for us when you created the world and the race of men that are made to glorify you in all things. Lord, help us to realize that purpose by coming to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith, trusting him for the salvation of our souls, to remove the sins and to remove the, the, the terrible things that make us guilty and condemned and deserving of eternal hell. Only Jesus can free us from that. Only Jesus can give life. So, Lord, we pray for any person here today who hasn't received you as Savior, if they want to live, this is the way to do it. If they want to continue throughout eternity and be with you, it's the only way it can be done, to trust Jesus Christ in Him alone. And then for us as Christians, Lord, 
Help us to defend life with everything that we have, with every ability that we have to fight against those who would want to take life away from people. We're here to preserve life because you gave life and we're made in the image of God and that's our justification for preserving it. So Lord, we pray that you would help us to stand strong on this at all times, not to give in to the culture of this world, the culture of death, but to live in the culture of life provided in Jesus Christ. Bless us, Lord. Help us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.